0: Hello, hello! Oh, there you are. <laughs> How you doing? Doing good. Busy and good. Yeah, busy. What are you doing these days? Um, well,
1: I mean, summer up here is just generally a very, very busy time. Um, but I do a rowing tour. Uh, I take people on these Airbnb experiences, uh, which is the platform, but. What the experience is uh, is I meet people in Lake Union and then I row them around uh, Lake Union and into Union Bay, which is the waterways that are mixed around Seattle, yeah. And then, um, end up uh, talking about history and looking for birds. <laughs> I like being outside, uh, I like meeting people, I like chatting about the history because I think the history of this city is very interesting, and I'm working on. A series of novels uh, that are going to be mostly based here in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, it's a good opportunity to um, just kind of, I'm always reading about the history of the area and trying to keep that fresh. And it's just a great platform to share that.
0: Hi, I'm Cyril, your host, and welcome to my podcast that I called, I really want to do this. In this podcast, I interview guests from all walks of life and try to understand the various ways that different types of people with different backgrounds and experiences succeed in achieving their goals in their very own ways. Think of the past 10 years in your own life. Have you had a personal goal, an objective? Maybe you call it a dream of doing this one thing. You really want to do that one thing, whatever it may be, but for some reason, you never succeeded in making it actually happen. Well, by showcasing successful achievers and asking them how they did it, I sincerely hope that this podcast will give you some ideas and maybe answers on where to start, how to proceed, in order to actually do that one thing that you really want to do. Hi everyone, this is Cyril. And so excited to have everyone again today. Uh, I say everyone, but uh, maybe it's like 50 people that have been downloading my podcast, but I actually don't care. I do it for the passion. I do it for the people, the guests that I have. So if there's one person that's listening, that's a win. Today, we have an amazing person that I can't wait to ask all these questions and I get to know him. Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, how are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Uh, uh, I'm three days uh, before a trip to France. I'm gonna be there two weeks to see my folks that I haven't seen in two years. Uh, my dad's turning 70. And oh. it's gonna be we do a I hope he doesn't listen to that podcast before that, but uh, we do a little weekend. the surprise all the my brothers and sisters are are coming up with their kids. We've rented this little place and we're gonna show up as a surprise and for a weekend. Oh. Um, so you know, going to France it's gonna be a surprise for them, but yeah, seventy years oh. old it's it's a stepping stone eh. Yeah. He's,
1: uh, he's going to love that. That's like, that, what a wonderful surprise.
0: Well, three brothers, I got three brothers and one sister. So we're going to have five kids plus now plus one. And all my brothers have either two, three or four kids. So <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> really nice to be all together. It's
1: gonna and, be a party.
0: Yeah. My other brother from San Francisco is going there as well as a surprise. So that's going to be cool, but it's not about me. The, uh, I want to get to know you. Uh, Obviously, like all the other guests, uh, I think there's something really interesting in your life that I want to feature, but we're going to go with a conversation-based mode. Uh, Let's start by the beginning. Um, Tell us about yourself. Where where were you born and what state in the U.S.? And and tell me a little bit about your background as a child.
1: Uh, So I was born in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, That's where my mom's family's from. And uh, I was only there very briefly at the time. My mom and dad were living on the west coast of Ireland. And uh, well, my dad's family, uh, they had made uh, scales like weights and measures going back to um, the 1880s. And it was based mainly in Chicago for several generations. And my grandfather had moved the family to Ireland in the late, uh, or I guess early 1970s. And that was where my dad finished up high school. So. Uh, He went off and did um, work for factory mutual before ended up uh, working at the family business, making scales in Ireland. But throughout that process, uh, he had met my mother down at a business trip in Mobile. And so
0: uh, this, (laughs) this Irish or he's American. Your dad is American. Yeah. Okay. But he lived quite a bit in, in Ireland.
1: Yeah. 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 So uh, he, uh, he was born in Chicago. And so this, uh, this, this, a yankee on a business trip ended up meeting this uh this southern bell and uh they got married and uh lived in ireland um and we were they, my mom and dad were there together for seven years oh no not quite seven years i think gosh i think together for about four years and then i was there for like the first 18 months of that and then another uh factory opened up in england a uh, place called Um, right by Stratford-upon-Avon. We lived in a little village called Pebworth. And we were there until uh, my dad died when I was three. Uh And uh, in that interim time, my grandparents had moved from Ireland to Las Cruces, New Mexico. So they went from the west coast of Ireland, which is a pretty remote place, to Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is also a pretty remote place, especially at the time just very different color palettes.
0: <laughs> wow! And do you remember doing that chain? That tr- you were really a kid, really. Yeah, yeah. I
1: was, I was, I was young, but I, I remembered. I have no memory of Ireland. I've, I've since uh, been back to visit, but uh, I have memories of England that are very vivid. And fortunate enough to have some vivid memories of my father, even though I was very young. Uh, but then, I mean, you're three years old, you just kind of like things happen to you and you move around. Um, So, you know, reflecting on just how different I thought it was, it was just something that happened. Um, Certainly, you know, anytime you lose a parent, it's, it's traumatic, but there's a certain resiliency uh, that's built into kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of how I see that transition, it was, you know, I was just kind of bobbing along. I mean, it would go you um, have to deal with things in a, with a lot more intensity later, but in terms of that transition, that doesn't seem like that's a, a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just yeah, these memories of transferring from like being in a very in a green and cold place to a place that's very hot and full of all these uh, really wonderful yellows and browns and uh, a lot of heat and a lot of smell of mesquite, um and really rugged mountains. Is it desert, New Mexico? I've never
0: been to New Mexico.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, New Mexico is a really beautiful state. Um, it's right there along that chain of mountains that runs down from, you know, Canada through Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and then into New Mexico. So it's, it's really high up there. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're at about, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 meters uh, in the central part of the state. Uh, that's where the Rio Grande River runs through it. And you have just a big, broad valley, and then you have the, the bosque, the, the river forest there. And then you have these uh, really rugged mountains on either side down the central part of the state. Uh, you have a really fascinating history. It goes back to, you know, back beyond, like the, the Spanish colonial history goes back 400 years. And then, you know, the native history goes back, you know, uh, you know at least 10,000, probably, you know, 20 plus thousand years there.
0: Well, wow, I love how you describe, like, the way you present the state makes me want to go there.
1: Oh, yeah, you you're, such a, uh,
0: you're a storyteller, I could tell right away.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's uh, I mean, yeah, the state has a good story, and I think, um, so we uh, we lived there for um, uh, so we lived in Las Cruces for a little while. Uh, my mom remarried, and um. Uh, my new dad decided that he wanted to become a lawyer. So we ended up moving to the state of Washington. He went to UW Law and was there for three years, got a job um, down in Albuquerque. And and in that time, I just totally fell in love with Washington. Uh, As much as I, as pretty as I I believe New Mexico is now, uh, like I just really connected with the water and the salt water and the green. and so when we moved to Albuquerque, um, I really wasn't as taken with the state as I am now. I kind of moved to a suburb and there wasn't, uh, uh, just things weren't as as interesting at the, at the time for me. Um, so I was very eager to, to move out. And my parents were thinking that they were going to eventually make their way back up to Washington. And so uh, when I went through high school, uh, I went to school up in, uh, up in the Puget Sound area in a little I guess, no, the the competing town of Seattle, uh, the uh, place called Tacoma, uh, which is a great little town. And uh, Seattle and Tacoma have a long rivalry going back to their pioneer days. Um, But that's where I ended up uh, falling in love with rowing. Uh, I swam in high school and swimming in New Mexico, especially in the summer, is amazing. You have all these outdoor pools. Uh, you know, you, you wake up and it's, uh, like the desert gets pretty cold in the morning, uh, yeah. even in the summer. So you wake up and you hop into this, this pool. And then by the time you get out, you have you know, got a great workout in, but you're still kind of cool and it's warming up and then <laughs> coming to Washington and, you know, wanting to do athletics in college.
0: And I remember cold. walking
1: yeah. Yeah, well, I just, uh, cold and dark and walking into an indoor pool and I was just not feeling it. So I, I checked the box on the, uh, the uh, kind of, it's, it's a D3 school. So it's, it's a smaller school. And so I checked this box uh, about, uh, you know, other sports that I wanted to try. And I was six, uh, six five, 195 pounds. And especially, I like me. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, <laughs> but if, if you, like, so rowing on the West Coast, uh, there's not that many options for uh, high school students compared to the East Coast. And so there's this right. kind of stereotype about rowing. Um, I think in general in the U.S., but especially on the West Coast, is these coaches just hunt down athletes. Like if you're if you're tall and you have any kind of athletic ability, you know they're gonna they're gonna find you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're gonna have you considered rowing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, come join this cult. Just uh, come at five a.m. this Tuesday just to check it out. Yeah. 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 You know. <laughs> Um, it's amazing how popular it ends up being considering what a, a hard sell early in the morning is right. for, yeah. for, for college kids, especially if you have no background in it. Uh, but I, I just totally fell in love with the sport. Uh, it was, it was in a beautiful place to begin with. So we were rowing down, um, at a place, uh, a lake 20 miles, not 20 miles, but 20 minutes south of campus, um, had a big island in it and then on clear days you could see mount rainier which is you know a five thousand mm-hmm. meter peak uh that's coming out that just dominates the landscape but I, I liked everything about it i liked the people i was rowing with i really enjoyed that camaraderie uh but i, I like the way it made me like specifically how it made me feel uh just like pulling on an oar is a very is very mm-hmm. satisfying to me um and then uh, just the aesthetic of you know seeing other boats on the water the sounds uh, everything added up to just me being just very attracted to it. So I uh, <laughs> I, I focused on that in uh, at my little D three school uh, university, um, and then also got a history degree. Um,
0: so at university, then, you wrote you wrote yeah, yeah a I wrote at
1: university for, for four That's years. That's really
0: competitive. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and it was and what was great is it was it was a D three school, so you know the focus was was on academics. Uh, but even though we were on this D3 school, we really focused on, which was University of Puget Sound, we focused on, um, we were we were a small team that punched above our weight, and we were able to go up against some teams that I kind of I felt like we really had no right competing against and mm-hmm. competing either well and, and sometimes beating them. You know, there were a few, you know, in West Coast rowing, there's like some top-tier D1 schools like UW and Cal that are in a whole other ball game. but there's a, some other D1 schools that, we were rowing against and, um, and competitive and or beating. Uh, and that was kind of like the underdog underdog. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was an, it was a great underdog mentality that was built in, uh, as well as just a really strong worth ethic, because we had to, like, we had, we also had to raise money if we wanted to race. So, you know, it was a varsity sport, but we had to, you know, our falls were, uh, characterized by going up to the university of Washington and, parking cars at the UW football games and so this was like- <laughs> and
0: trying to raise money there
1: yeah to raise money and that was uh that was part of one of the things that we would do uh to do that that fundraising um in order to to make things happen so there was like you know people really had to put uh, put their skin in the game and it kind of made for a, a broader camaraderie uh between you know all the rowers uh you know on both men's and women's teams because you know there were that was something that we shared uh
0: and yeah. it's a good skill to have to do whatever you have to do to make things happen uh yeah so totally we did money to buy a new boat let's find the money you know yeah uh, and and did you use that i'm sure and after that in, in other expeditions you've done and
1: yeah a- absolutely i think that was something that that characterized um what was going to happen afterwards so uh post-college you know i was uh, i was a big guy i was pretty quick you know but i was at a d3 school and i wanted to see if i could Continue to row afterwards. So, you know, in, in university you row sweep, which is one oar in each. One hand. side,
0: yeah. Oh and, no, and sweep.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So sweep is is one big oar, and either you're rowing port or starboard, yeah. And that tends to be um, that tends to become kind of like kind of the 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 focus in American schools. Uh, but post collegiately, I was like, well, you know, I want to improve on my my rowing skills, so I learned how to scull and moved up to uh, Seattle, where there was a a friend of mine, Greg Spooner, whom you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he he was also training and just kind of, we're just kind of seeing how fast we could go. And like, if we got a little bit faster, see what the next level was. And, you know, the, the intention for me was like, just to see if like, I, if I had that kind of speed in me, but I, I had this understanding that this was going to be a very long process. Uh, and it's, you know, post-collegiately trying to figure out what to do, um, with your life. And, uh, you know, I was just trying to figure out like, how can I build rowing into my life? Um, So at that
0: point you wanted to be a rower or did you have an idea of a career you wanted to do?
1: uh, You know, I really had, I mean, so the,
0: You're like 20, 22. Yeah, I was,
1: I was, 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 yeah, I was 20, I was 21. So that fall of when I was 21, um, I ended up moving up here and, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged. Uh, my family ran this, uh, scale company for, um, for years and years. And I, um, they ended up selling it in 1997. And so like, I was lucky enough that, you know, I was able to graduate without any, uh, any university debt, which was very rare. And I, and I was able to to roll into, you know, post-college with a, um, uh, with a nest egg and I used that to, you know, very quickly to, I mean, get all these things kind of happen at once. Like I wanted to build and rowing into my life. I had this little nest egg and I came into, <laughs> I moved, um, up permanently to Seattle in October of 2000. No, I guess 2004. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it would have been in the, in the fall of 2004 and started training, um, and the whole idea was like, hey, you know, I, I'm going to go invest in a house and I'm going to flip a house because like, what are you going to do with a history degree? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, this just seemed <laughs> like it would make sense at the time. Um, and so I started mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm 21 going to, you know, use like invest what I have in this house and then I'll just figure out how to flip it um, with that. I had no reason uh, to think that I could possibly do anything like this. Well, you're like, handy,
0: aren't you? I mean, you could say, look, I could fix. I mean, I didn't, know,
1: I didn't know I was handy at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't think that I was particularly handy, but I was like, I, I don't know, like, I can work hard. How hard can it be? Yeah. Uh, it turns out very hard. But so I was doing that and I was also training. So all these things were happening at the same time. And I was getting a little bit faster. And then this poster uh, appears on the boathouse wall advertising this rowing race across the ocean. Wow, and I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> uh, it was just this, uh, it was this big, funky-looking rowboat uh, that was cruising down the wave, and these two rip-looking dudes that were really tanned surfing down it. And the whole concept of roaming across the ocean just, just got under my skin. And uh-huh.
0: adventure, or yeah, yeah,
1: because I think what was what was attractive uh, to me at the time is that I think that I was. Intimidated with the process of of rowing post collegiately with a goal to try and you know make it on an elite level, and the thing that was kind of bugging me about that was that like, I mean, there's no guarantees and there's no guarantees in yeah. anything. But it was just it was a very singular focus. It was this one thing. Um, you know, I'd be training for you know potentially years to do this um, to to race these two thousand meters as fast as I could and you know see where that would take me. Whereas I looked at this, uh, this whole idea of rowing across the ocean. And I thought to myself, like, this is a multifaceted challenge mm-hmm. because how the hell do you row across the ocean? You know, yeah. like, I, I, you know, I got the rowing part, uh, down, but like, does that even apply when you're out at sea in these big old waves? I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, how do you make this thing happen? Um, and we really, uh, like I had no, there were just so many different types of challenges though seemed really attractive to me. Hmm. Um, so I went to my, uh, my buddy, Greg, who I was training with at the time. And I was like, ask him if he wanted to row across the ocean. And he said, no.
0: Uh, so I called up, like, yeah. like for him, he was clear, like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, he was like,
1: no, I am. He made it very clear that he was, he was not interested. But Greg's a really adventurous type. And uh, that was kind of his, that was his reputation in, in college. So I was like, I just kind of felt like there might be something more there. Uh, and then I, uh, called my buddy, my buddy, Brad, who, um, he was still in a university and he was getting ready to, uh, so he was actually, when I called him up, he was parking cars. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was doing that thing that, you know, we, we'd done at university every single year. And I could, I could hear the, when I called him up, I, I could hear the raindrops on his hood. You're <laughs> sitting there parking cars in the rain for a whole other school's football game and I was like Brad if you uh if I was going to row across the ocean would you row with me and Brad's just like Brad's just like he's 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 a big dreamer he's got just big ideas and I was like if any one of my friends is going to say yes it's going to be Brad and he's just silence on the phone for a while he was like maybe (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so this
0: Tell guy me more. Like, <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so i was like the so
0: one says no one says maybe okay who's the <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> who do you call next <laughs>
1: yeah well so anyway he was like so send me all the stuff you got and uh you know 10 days from now we'll, we'll meet up and uh you know we'll, we'll just we'll just talk more about it so i sent him all the stuff that i've been researching and he uh you know 10 days later we met down at the uh, university of, of puget sound in the old student union building and and I could see he's pretty excited about it. We just spent the whole day talking about it. Like, what would it take to row across the ocean? And he was like, yeah, hey, you know, they had this, uh, this four person race. And like, uh, there's, a, there's a race across the mid Atlantic that has two people. And then there's this race across the North Atlantic that has four people. And it's in more or less the same, we'd have a little bit more time. We'd have, you know, two more people and that just got me really excited. Uh there was just something about that. that seemed like even even burlier than the middle, mid-Atlantic. Like the North Atlantic it you know it hadn't been done as a race before. It was where the you know the very first two ocean rowers Harbo and Samuelson had rowed across in uh, in 1896. And so this was like and it was also it was rowing towards England which for both Brad and yeah. I cuz he had uh, his mother's English um had a, a significant meaning. Yeah. So at the end of the day like Brad was into it, so drove back like late at night. I probably like, I called Greg at you know nine nine thirty. Could have been ten o'clock, and I was like, "We got a team." <laughs> He's like, "Do you want to be a part of this?" <laughs> and he said, uh, he was like, again, he, he kind of got quiet. He's like, "I'll be involved. I'll be involved in some way, but I probably won't row." And I was like, "I don't <laughs> think this guy is gonna like work on this project and get this boat to you know New York." and not get in the boat. He's just kind of too, like, I, don't know, I just, I just didn't see that. And what was funny is like, Greg and I are now like, we're really good buddies. We've done all these trips together. Uh, but at the time, like, you know, when you're younger, someone who's four years older, that, that seems like a big chasm of time Yeah, and a big chasm of maturity. And Greg had been out of school for, uh, you know, a few years, like he had a real job that was paying him real money. Uh, he seemed so much more mature. Uh, and so, It just was kind of surprised when he was like into it in this you know this management sense but very quickly you know people started putting you know some skin in the game we needed a fourth person and there's this guy we'd rode with named dylan uh who was just like everything about dylan just like exuded hard work and ethic uh Mm. and he had this, this sense of adventure that was um you know he just like he just kind of the way he talked about things and the things that he'd been attracted to in college, uh, in addition to rowing, were uh, were adventury things. And so, you know, Brad and I, we kind of floated it to some other guys that we'd rode with, and uh, when we came to Dylan, it was like, yeah, you know, like he's, you know, he's very different from us, and that was that's gonna add a lot of value to the team. And hmm. he liked the idea, and his mom said it was the dumbest idea she'd ever heard. <laughs> and then so at this point i was like you know i'd been like in in college i'd been like uh you know team captain and um so here i was and i was like bringing this other group of guys that i've rode with before uh together in like this you know in this in this post-collegiate project and these guys still had you know another six months of school left they had a whole other season of of collegiate rowing
0: and what did your your mom say about it
1: you know my (laughs) Well, so what was interesting is as I was talking about it because I I think she didn't, she didn't really think it was serious until it was serious, and then when it was serious, she asked a lot of questions, and we had a lot of answers. So it was clear that we'd done done a lot of research. Yeah. And but by that time, you know, people, you know, we needed we had to start doing these race payments, and so, you know, we're kind of scrounging money for that, Uh, and then you know, bringing this together for, um, you know, bigger payments to actually get the boat here. And this was part that was so that, that I that I reflect on is, is, I ended up writing a book about it. And there's only there's like a very little bit that's about all the preparation. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the preparation is really like, for me, where a lot of that story is, uh, because I mean, the row itself took 72 days. Uh, but uh, the preparations for it was about 20 months.
0: Yeah, and- I'm really interested in this and how the the initial idea is born in your head until the moment you're taking off the dock in New York. Oh, was it in Canada? Was it, was it in uh, New, it was York? New York? Yeah, out of New York. There's so much that, you know, how, how did the idea born in your head, like, okay, I'm going to do it. Was it like a fire or like, this is going to happen. No matter what, I got to find a crew. I got to, was there a process? It was it very natural. It just like, Oh, I'm going to ask this guy and, and see what's going on.
1: I think it was, it was, it was fairly natural, but then it was like, you know, I'm a very enthusiastic, passionate person, but I, in terms of like getting a project done, uh, like I think very practical. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, like what's the next step? Like what's, if we want to do this, what's the very next thing that we need to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then building that into a bigger timeline. So the first thing was like, we had to get, uh, you know, had to get everybody put down, you know, we had to get 1200 bucks to to register for the race. Yeah. Uh, and then we had to um, start figuring out how, how to fundraise. Yeah, I had to get the boat. And then when the boat came here, the boat had some cracks in it. Uh, so we had to fix it. And so the, in terms of of how this, this 20 months um, developed, it was, you know, I saw the poster in November of, of 2000. Uh, five and then everybody had a group. Like we had a team by November of 2004, uh, January of 2005, we had a team. Uh, Dylan and Brad still had to graduate, uh, and so Greg and I, we were you know doing the training thing and we were you know racing and getting faster, but also just trying to figure out how we were going to do this. And meanwhile, I was like, I was gonna, I was gonna buy this house and I was gonna figure out how to flip it. Uh, <laughs> so I ended up finding this house and ended up closing on it in March. And it was like, you know, kind of this old beater house on this block that had good bones. And it started like, uh, that was the reason that I chose it, but uh, everybody moved up into Seattle and moved into the house. And so it just became like our headquarters. And one of the first things I did in this house was like tear up carpet and start opening up the walls. And again, I had no idea what I was doing.
0: So tell me about this I'm really interested in how do you think you got this personality of tackling things that are unfamiliar to you that are new to you that are just like you're attracted by the challenge of it like I can do it how hard could it be you know I work hard how hard hard can it be yeah, do you I mean, have a motto that like you you use throughout uh, all this
1: you know in terms of like I don't think I have had a motto specifically for that 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 resonates that I uh, that I or that that I remember um, like today, I think, uh, <laughs> when I think of how I'm acting today, the the motto that I continue to ask myself is like, to what end, to what end am I doing anything? And, uh, mm. so, but in terms of like back then, there's no, there wasn't really like a necessarily like a rah-rah type thing. I was just like, I really wanted to row across the ocean because I thought it was a cool idea and I couldn't yeah. get it out of my head. And I, there's a it's being a passionate person is uh, can be a very double edged sword, because like, I really want to do the things that I want to do. And I'm willing to work really, really hard to make that happen, and do a lot of things that I would otherwise find unpleasant. But if I'm not inspired by the idea, yeah. I will, I will not do it. I just yeah. I, and this yeah. is and that that is not a good thing. Because I really admire people that are able to sit down and just do a thing that they don't necess- aren't necessarily that passionate about to get it done. Like, I have to figure out what the passion is. And I, for me, the way that I, that I think about the world is there's people that can do something to support their passion or they have to make their passion pay. Yeah. And so I think I'm in the realm of, you know, I got to figure out how to make my passions pay, which means that I got to figure out all these little, you know, hustles and side hustles. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I've had so much freedom to pursue a lot of these things is that i turned my house into um, basically it's a boarding house. Like I, I rent out all the rooms and mm-hmm. that allows me to have a lot more freedom uh, to go out and spend a lot of time, you know, figuring out all these other little hustles that I find very interesting Uh, for one reason or the other and so with the the ocean row like again it i think we all got into it for a very similar reason in the sense that we the idea just inspired us it was a big idea pulling oneself across the ocean was a big meaty idea there is a you know within uh within our our culture is a this idea that you mesh some kind of like large athletic endeavor with some kind of fundraising endeavor. And that's just something that, you know, is, is is kind of a little weird, but it's just something that seems to make sense to people. It's just something that, mm-hmm. you know, that's the milieu that, uh, you know, that, that I grew up in. These things are like team and training or whatever, you know, like what's the fundraising thing that you're going to do this big thing for? And I kind of think it's uh, like, if I think about it too critically, it, it always seems a little like silly and, and, and the connection is, is almost a little bit weak to me. Uh, for a lot of these but whatever it is it's just something that is in our culture and so while we were on that uh, journey we were trying to figure out like well what's the thing that we're going to raise money for that we like that we give a shit about and greg had uh, greg's uh, girlfriend at the time had a connection to uh the head of the american lung association of washington and uh you know, it seemed like this was a good connection where, you know, we're rowing, it's a sport that uses a lot of lungs. They're into looking after the yeah, lungs. Makes sense. And yeah. as we're developing uh, this idea, this whole idea of my dad dying of asthma uh, pops up because he had died of, of mm-hmm. asthma three. So I remember going into this meeting and we're talking about it. And I started, you know, just kind of talking about my story. And in hindsight, I can see that I really hadn't talked about it in a meaningful way as an adult up until that moment. And again, I was 21. I was just barely an adult. Uh, but I was in this meeting and I just started like, like holding mm. back these sobs and uh, it was, and it was a, it was a very, it was a very confused uh, feeling for me because it's like, you know, am I, Like, I I want to row across the ocean, but here we are raising money for the American Lung Association. And like, is this is this a weird way to use this memory? Um, And so there was I had some mixed feelings about it. uh, But as it developed, uh, it became about much more for me than just rowing across the ocean because we were. you know, we got this boat here, and we're you know we'd committed to to raising money for them because it just seemed like it was a good thing. And I was telling the story, and these guys came up to me individually, and they were like, "We should name the boat after your dad." Mm-hmm. So, like, literally, like, name this vessel uh, after um, my biological father. And the way that I've thought about it now is, I mean, everybody has some kind of like you can't escape the human experience without something tragic happening to you. That's like part yeah. of the human experience. Uh, yeah. And some people are, are are lucky that they have very little bits of that and other people just seem plagued by it. It's just the way it is. But everybody, no one gets out of life without some kind of tragedy like that. Yeah. And when that happens, what I, what I believe is when that happens when you're a child is uh, you have child-sized tools to deal with these things. And so you build a child-sized box to deal with the trauma and the grief. And that means that later you will have to take that grief and that trauma out of that child-sized box as an adult and build an adult box to mm-hmm. keep that in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, because you've become an adult, you have more tools, uh, you have a more complex life. And that's what this process became for me was um, kind of smashing that that box that I built as a child and building this new one to kind of reconcile all of these feelings I I had about, you know, my dad's death, my family, my uh, my new dad and my mother and all of those relationships in between. I think for me, like part of it was, you know, I, I had I have an amazing uh, second dad. Like I've never called him my, my, my stepdad because he never felt that way. And, uh, and I don't, like that term and i feel like you know within our culture there's a certain loaded term with like a step parent. yes and so because of that i've never i've never liked that term because he was just always like he was there he was my second dad he was Mm
0: -hmm. in, in
1: a large part the reason uh you know why i ended up liking the outdoors uh you know out in the deserts of new mexico he introduced me to uh you know all kinds of camping and just the the joy of just being out in nature um and so that's, uh, but on the other side, I had all of these, you know, resources that came from this, you know, this family that had, you know, the, the story that I grew up with is, you know, Marius Hansen, my great, great grandfather coming over from Denmark in 1888 and starting this scale company. Wow. And yeah. The thing that had like, you know, I'm the, I'm the first son of the first son of the first son. And so, I mean, going back to one of your other questions uh, about like, you know, what my, my career idea uh, is within my family like like for, I, I was like the fifth generation and all of the eldest sons had always gone back to the factory. Yeah. For, for a long time, <laughs> for, <laughs> for as long as I, I, I knew. And it was, so I didn't really realize when like the factory was like how I didn't realize how much I had internalized that. Um, and really, your past
0: that you had to do to do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just like, I'll go off and do my own thing for a little bit and then I'll end up at the factory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, because like that's the way it had always been like as a a child I would walk into the factory and like people would would joke around with me and call me young Mr. Hansen. Uh, (laughs) my grandfather and my uncle and my other uncle were running the show and I kind of had free reign of the place like after five o'clock when the press when the steel presses shut down like I, me and my cousins would go roll around in the in the forklifts when we were like way too young to be doing anything like that. But like the sound of the press is the smell of the machine oil. And it was just like, this is just something that's, um, the, yeah. this is what we do. Yeah. So I think that when I had, you know, all throughout my life, like you will finish high school and you will finish college. You will go off and do your own thing for a little bit. And then you come back. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way it was. Uh, and so I think that that was where my mentality was, is that that was always going to be something that was there. And obviously it wasn't, I mean, it had been sold a few years before, but I was like, I hadn't really internalized that until really post row and then try to figure out like, well, you know, there's no factory to go back to Like, what am I going to (laughs) do? I got to figure that out. Um, and I mean, again, looking back, that seems like a, a silly, naive thing at the time, but like it is silly and naive and i was those things when i was younger <laughs> it makes, yeah damn. Um, so
0: tell me let me let's go back to the so it looks like when you started with that project of rowing the ocean it was like why not kind of like yeah i, I want to row you know we've got friends who want to do it why not but then you said you transitioned into to what end kind of motto is that during that same project that you know that that idea of doing it but yes with the lung association or that it could be a good end that we would associate to it and then how, how did you go to
1: with that particular while that project was happening i think it was just we got got so caught up in getting the thing done i mean we became obsessed mm. it was it was uh, it was burning the candle at both ends and i mean we had we'd been this team before we were all taught uh how to row by the same person and so we had the, a very similar Uh, We had a a similar story and team background going into this. And we, we, we had ego, we had pride and we didn't want to disappoint um, each other or all of these people who had started coming out of the woodwork who were, you know, believing in us. And we felt like we were walking this line. And so, you know, for like leading up into the, the leading up into the, before we even got to the starting line, but especially like those last six months, it just felt like, uh, we were all sitting around a bonfire and everybody was holding their hand as close to the fire as possible. And, uh, and no one was going to pull back. I mean, it was, it was not healthy at all. (laughs) Like it was, but it was, and it was like some of the most fun I'd never want to do again. Uh, (laughs) That's a good way to put it. But it was, uh, but there was, there was something that was really, uh, we were very young and because of that very earnest and 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 people picked up on that yeah uh, and then when we went to New York, um, you know there had been fourteen spots for people to to race, and seven teams had signed up, and four only made it to the starting line, so that already felt like a victory to just get there um, and then it was the row across the ocean and like the one thing that we had really going for us was I think we had a really good set of mentors uh the whole time
0: mm.
1: um like leading up into that
0: uh like coach or who were they
1: all these people these people who worked on boats um you know uh like uh larry uh larry dan uh, these guys from Emerald harbor marine uh, uh and then david birch uh you know as navigator here and these these guys that just really and, and these are just the you know um multiple uh people who came out who really like gave us the advice and they saw that we were willing to work hard and we would be at the boatyard until 2am and like be back there at 8 um every day just we would make mistake after mistake until we got it right and when we showed up in new york we had this boat that was we felt really dialed in we saw the other boats and we saw you know things on their boats that we were like hey we've already thought through that and we realized that we know that that's wrong
0: yeah
1: and so we showed up with these, what we felt was the best boat. And where our focus was the whole time is that just the, the physics of the boat is that there aren't like, when you have a boat that, that, that's that big that you're trying to move under oar power, uh, there's not really a specific rowing stroke that's going to um, give you more power. It has a hull speed mm-hmm. and it wants to go that speed. So where you can where the, where it counts to make the stroke better was making it the most ergonomic stroke, making those right. rowing seats the most comfortable seats on the boat, so that you can spend more time rowing. And then yeah. the more time those seats are filled and people are moving the oars, that's how you're going to make the time. Because you can't you can't muscle that boat. You can muscle a thirty pound skull. Eight yeah. people can uh, muscle a two hundred and fifty pound eight, but a boat like that, you just have to grind and and find the sweet spot. Yeah. And if you grind as comfortably as possible, you're going to want to do more of that or you're going to tolerate doing more, more of that.
0: Tell Um, me more about those, those mentors because I think it's part of any kind of endeavor that anybody could have. It doesn't matter if you want to row an ocean or do any kind of sport or travel or whatever. There's these people that are that feel your energy that you output Again, whatever it is, you want to create a non-profit, you just say, it. you have this energy, people will feel it and they'll say, I want to be part of it in one way or another. And I think that's, that's part of the, the magic of making things happen. It's just, just you grinding, making up. It's all these parts that come ar- around like um, magic, right? Angels or um, I think we always forget about those, those parts and but it starts with the creating the spark like i want to do this and yeah. then it, it's like one way to say you know start start working and the universe will make it happen and th- this is what they mean like the universe will finally gather to make it happen if you really want it no huh? mm-hmm.
1: yeah no i think that uh i mean that's one of the most beautiful parts about it is is those relationships and when i think about it it's uh that is the thing that that's writ large um you know beyond uh, you know what we were able to accomplish out on the water was all the stuff leading up to that uh, um, but in terms of like how my mentalities changed to kind of like the thinking of like to what end with with what I'm doing to to go back to your question, um, so as so the organization we put together, we called it or Northwest uh, and we ended up winning the race, getting a Guinness world record. And we spent so much time like making this thing uh, that it just kind of seemed like, Oh man, you know, like if we just made it for this one thing, um, then what is, uh, you know, what's the um, like, that was a lot of work for, for something that we're just going to yeah. put away. Yeah. Let's let's so, optimize
0: what you already created.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we had this, this, uh, this framework um, and we were, you know, like Dylan, Dylan went off to, to law school, um, Brad ended up working for the boat show, Greg went and become uh, became a, a, a PT. And uh, so Northwest was still kind of like, it, it existed on paper. And, you know, Greg and I talked about doing some other trips uh, here and there. And um, a few years later, one of them started to, to, to pick up when we had a, a mutual friend of ours, Rick reached out and he's like, if you ever think about doing something like an ocean row again, like I, I wanna get in on that. So he reached out to me, and then uh, Brad and I, uh, Brad invited me to go do a rowing, actually out of Sausalito, Mm -hmm. do an open water rowing race uh, with, uh, so these Whitehall boats that are made up in Canada. Um, This guy, Harold, he invited uh, Brad, Brad invited me, and Harold also invited this guy, Adam Creek, who had just come back from uh, uh, winning the gold in the Olympics uh, in Beijing, so uh, we all raced uh, in these, these boats. And, you know, Adam, of course, you know, smashed us cause he's just a, a unit of a, of a human. Um, but, you know, he talks about winning a, a gold medal. I talked to him about the, about the Guinness world record. And I was like, maybe this guy, like <laughs> he wants to row across an ocean and he was into it. And so that Rick was into it and he's a hell of a rower. And then I called up Greg and I was like, man, I'm thinking about getting the band back together. Oh Yeah. <laughs> And it Greg's like, I don't, I don't know if I got another one in me. Um, and so, <laughs> but at that point, it was like, okay, to, like started to ask the question, like, to what end? Are we going to raise money for the American Lung Association? Like, why are we doing this? Like, yeah. Honestly, like, I want to get out there again, because I think like, I, I actually enjoy being out in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean. It's why I'm rowing people around right now. Rowboats go slow. And to me, that's the virtue of it because you get to see so much. So I think that's really cool. Um, And uh, yeah, so we're in this process of trying to figure out like, why are we going to do this? And you know, same thing for Adam, because he's like, he's raced on this elite level. So, you know, racing in a, uh, you know, racing across the ocean doesn't exactly like, um, didn't really attract him. So Mm -hmm. the idea of doing one of the the mid-Atlantic races and going for record, that didn't really... Um, you know, hit our jollies. So we started to think like, okay, like we're doing this adventure, how can it benefit other people? And that's where this idea of figuring out how to weave in, um, to take the adventure and weave in education and science into it. Mm. And so we're like, this is a really unique platform. Uh, There's, you know, going in a place where, you know, not a lot of boats go, we can make observations. If we have scientific equipment on board, we can start to take samples uh and do kind of this citizen science thing while we're out there. And then we can c- communicate that experience to uh students along the way. So this took a whole lot to develop, uh, you know, and ended up working on this row for for four years, whereas the other one was 18 months. And a big part of that was that, you know, the first row, we had four guys just out of school uh who could focus all of their energy yeah. as imperfectly as that was. And we all lived together in the same house. So now we were spread out and, you know, people had, you know, different resources, lives, right? but they didn't have uh, that resource of time. And so things just took a while to, to get together. And we couldn't build up that kind of that energy from having people close together. And that's a really valuable thing is actually getting people close together to be able to generate that, uh, that energy. And, but throughout that process, we ended up, uh, you know, uh, partnering with the Canadian Wildlife Federation because Adam had this contact that he'd been developing uh, over years and years. And we ended up um, just meeting these wonderful people at Canadian Wildlife and they were totally into it. And we ended up designing this row that was going to go from mainland uh, Africa to mainland USA. And we had all of this science equipment on board. We, we, we partnered with all kinds of we were doing a sleep study. We were doing, you know, water quality studies. Uh, we were, you know, figuring out um, like uh, smart software for 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 scheduling for our phones, mm-hmm. um, like all kinds of things. It was a psychological survey that we were doing. So we were like, how many <laughs> how many projects can we build on this boat so that we can take this unique experience and give it That's as much mark. value yeah. uh, as possible? Because this this seems to mesh more than you know, raising money for a specific type of cause. This was like, we wanna, this is interesting and it's um, valuable because it is interesting, but we want to take advantage of that and squeeze the most of that out of it, um, and then communicate that to students along the way. And so that's what we did. And so we had, this boat had way too big a satellite um, communication system that took way too much energy and we put way too many solar panels just so we could send pictures back in, you know, 2013. Yeah. Uh, and that was really our main focus was generating, you know, content in real time to get it back to um, and, and like really like that was our priority every day was getting stuff back for people to interact with yeah. uh, from the middle of the sea. So we ended up doing that. It ended really dramatically day 72. We ended up capsizing, Um, (laughs) and I can go into that story in a little bit but just to kind of continue this vein of like to what end uh you know we capsized we got rescued we found the boat there's a whole lot more to it than that but then afterwards it was like again we want to keep uh we want to like what's the next level for for or Northwest this organization and the idea of doing a trip where we could really like get face to face with students yeah something that was really attractive and so but you need you, you need to have an adventure in a specific type of place to be able to do that and that's when we uh decided that the, going down the Mississippi River was a good place to do it there was a lot of science that we could do and then we we were passing through areas where we could you know go from the river into the classroom yeah. and I mean the river is is massive and it's a it's a grand adventure and it's a classic uh it's a classic adventure um and people these days, the way they interact with the river, for the most part, is just going over bridges. And it's just a very brief thing that is in your peripheral view. And we wanted to bring like, you know, hey, this is your drinking water. This is where, you know, the the, the history of, of this nation is, is all wrapped up into this river. Uh, we ended up partnering with some scientists at UW and down at LSU. And the discussions that we had with them uh, was, you know, things that we had learned from that previous trip was it's not good enough to just be able to go out and collect the data you got to make sure that there's enough funding on the back end to be able to produce a paper and so you know we we brought that to the next level there uh and you know we talked to this guy you know dr thrash um, and he was like yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fiddle with this unless i'm gonna be able to publish a paper like it just wasn't worth his time so that was good to see like that kind of energy and so went down and did that trip. We did, um, we reached about 200 and 2,220 students with, uh, wow. with that particular trip. Uh, like, like in, in the classroom, like we'd show up, um, we'd hide the boat and have someone meet us on the other side of the levee and then, you know, drive to this classroom, give a presentation. Um, and you know, we worked at developing curriculum along the way. Uh, and then the year after that, we ended up doing a, um, uh, Like at this point, it had all been folks that had rowed across the ocean, but uh, as this organization was going to develop, like it had to, you know, it had to bring in more people. And so the next year we worked on this trip to get uh, these two uh, women who had graduated pretty recently from the university of Puget Sound rowing team. And they went and they did a similar trip down uh, the Columbia river. And as this was happening, this whole idea of figuring out how to pass down the adventure and Mm. create an organization that was um, doing as much, taking the concept of adventure and doing as much uh, good that, that we felt really aligned with the adventure itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, how to weave that in along the way. And so, as that trip down the Columbia River was going on, we were working with the University of Puget Sound to make a classroom, uh, to make a, a class that was to train people to go down the Mississippi River. But not just go down the river, but do all of that science and do all of that outreach along the way. And so the idea that you have essentially like graduate students or current students that are teaching younger students. So that's wow. so that second trip down the river. Um, so we 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 rode uh, so in 2000, 2012 we did a, a practice row around Vancouver Island. 2013 was a trip. Um, across the ocean that ended up in a capsize and rescue. 2014 was a trip down the Mississippi River. 2015 it was a trip down uh, the Columbia. And then 2016, we continued that first study we were doing at LSU. Um, But this time there were four four students that were managing things back on shore, uh, like all the communication stuff. And then we had four students that were on the river itself and I was with them uh, and we Google street view the river and reached, uh, like, I think like 5,300 students. That's like, wow. time. so we, did, it was 104 days to go down the river, but we did 84 presentations. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And like, and, and kept this, this Google street view contraption, uh, functioning enough that, you know. It it probably got about forty five percent of the river, um, but yeah, if you go on Google Street View and you check it out, you can see, uh, you'll see little um, of Some of the
0: it's great how the whole project just took a life of its own. Basically, like it, it was, this is done. What next? With more value, and this is done. What was next? How can we improve? It's like a continuous improvement of of um, that nonprofit that is. Yeah. All-
1: and, and I felt like we, we'd really like reached, you know, this point where it was like, we really had a good idea and it was something that could, you know, build in a really positive way, but we just couldn't figure out the funding. And at that point I was just like, I was, I was burnt out in every way possible and finished that row. And there was just, there was no, there was no um, funding uh, that we could figure out in in a quick enough time to be able to to do things. And I, I wouldn't say like I had a breakdown, but it was like I was like this this part of my life needs to yeah. needs I like I need to move on to something different, and that was really hard. Um, and uh, kind of what had happened uh, throughout that time was like that's kind of started doing these Airbnb rows. Is that um, you know afterwards I was looking for <laughs> you know what is someone who's been doing like you know doing research and and putting together these projects. It's like I go out and I do a mini version of that. Uh, you know, for the, this little row in Seattle, in this place that I that I love living, uh, and so that's been this little side gig that's developed from that. Uh, but while I've been doing that, I've been also working on um, working on a series of novels. So I wrote a book about the first ocean row, and that's a memoir. And I'd say, like, if I was going to identify myself, uh, how I identify would be a, a writer first, and then everything else, uh, mm. you know, growing a close second. Um, so I got fourteen hundred pages of these uh, historical novels that I'm working on. So I've been working on that and doing these, uh, little Airbnb rows, uh, you know, on the side, as well as, you know, I I still rent out all the rooms in my house to kind of make everything function.
0: And the tiny boat sessions. Tell us about that too.
1: (laughs) Yes. The tiny boat session is, uh, was something that I did not, did not see coming, but it's it's like the pandemic. Nobody saw that coming. Yeah, Uh, I think a lot of people, if you think about it, like, war, pestilence and famine, like sometime <laughs> in our generation, we were definitely going to experience it. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people did see that coming, but I think it was a surprise for a lot of people um, in the era that I, that I'm studying for my books, it covers the the Spanish influenza. And so I'd actually read a few books on it leading up into it. And I, every time I'd finish one, I think to myself, man, this is probably going to happen again, probably on while I'm alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, the the pandemic happens. And like, it's like this slow motion thing that's, you know, this tidal wave coming towards us, or at least that's kind of how it felt, uh, felt like to me. And I was lucky enough that I had a, a housemate of mine who had spent three years in China in the Peace Corps. And so he was paying really close attention as this was developing. Um, and so in terms of everybody who lived in the house, like we were, we'd already, but by, by the time San Francisco had shut down, we'd already done like two big food buys. <laughs> so we had all of these supplies, uh, cause he was, uh, he was like the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so about a week before everything shuts down, I'm like, it's kind of clear that like, it's, it's clear that it's going to happen yeah. and it's coming our way. And I was just out for a row with one of my housemates. Uh, and it was out there on the saltwater, a little park called Golden Gardens. And sun was going down, middle of March, uh, just a beautiful day. But you could like, you could just, you could feel people were very just concerned. Um, you could feel that, that, uh, that, that, that fear that everybody had in these very small um, groups that were hanging out on the beach in the park and growing past them. And I hear something, I turn around, And there's this grizzly man who's sitting in a tiny boat and he has this uh, beautiful shiny saxophone and he's just playing his heart out like he doesn't give a damn sun's going down this guy's playing this music it's just in the middle of this thing approaching us and I was just overwhelmed with uh, yeah just like with just a feel a warm feeling. got off the water. Later that night, I saw that image of the Italians that were singing into the streets. That got me, you know, feeling very verklempt. And I was thinking, things are going to shut down. They're going to shut down soon. We're all going to be sitting inside. I think having something beautiful to look at would be good. And I I saw this guy playing this music, and I thought it was beautiful. So I called my friend Sandy, who plays, she's at the Center for Wooden Boats, and she'd just been furloughed and uh, she plays the ukulele and I was like I had this experience you want to come out and like hang out in the boat and I'll just film you playing the ukulele Um, because maybe 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 I saw what I saw was was too fantastical but she came out and I filmed her playing and and again it was this beautiful thing so Monday morning uh, I'd actually I just started this real estate job um, and our first meeting was like hey so what about this pandemic so this is like a week after that had happened and I was like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start looking for people who can play music in the back of my boat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, did you have any more um, thought about that action rather than I, it just feels good? I'm just going to do this. Like-
1: yeah, it just felt it felt like the right thing. And okay. so I, I reached out to a bunch of people um, and I was like, does anybody know anybody who plays music? And, you know, on Monday, like nobody got back to me. Uh, And maybe it's because it was Monday, or maybe it's because the pandemic was coming. And then like Tuesday and Wednesday, and I'm starting to be like, you know, maybe I should have focused on my new job. (laughs) And uh, like, Friday morning, um, I was just kind of feeling a little bit silly. But at 1130, I got a phone call from my buddy. And he was like, uh, he's like, I know this woman, Kim, she plays, uh, she plays uh, for the Pacific Northwest Ballet. She thinks this idea is great. And I was like, yeah, I'll meet her this afternoon. So over that weekend, I ended up having 11 artists play uh, four songs each. And um, I started feeding these out as, as and like the, the, when I got the last song um, of that collection, uh, that's when the governor signed the stay at home order. Wow, and so yeah. that I, you know, processed the film as quickly as I could. And I started feeding it out and it called it tiny boat session. It's just songs in tiny boats. And there was just something about a person sitting in the back of a boat alone, playing a song They're just like like, I'd sit there and I'd film this and I'd be thinking to myself, am I crazy or is this just flipping beautiful? Yeah. Uh, And I was just I really got into like these lone musicians playing songs in a tiny boat. So fed out a song a day and I was thinking, oh, 44 songs like that was pretty good. Like, you know, if if we got a quarantine for like two weeks, like we got plenty of time to (laughs) to do this. And of course, like it ended up, you know, being a lot longer than two weeks. And so, but afterwards in Seattle, things were starting to open up again. And uh, I'd started to get some interest to do some more songs afterwards. So I started collecting more songs, and throughout this whole process, uh, one of the guys, uh Eric, uh, he lived on his boat, he played the guitar, and um he was planning, like if the pandemic hadn't happened. The year after, he was going to sail his boat down to Hawaii and back, because uh, that was just one of his life goals. So the pandemic happens; he's you know furloughed for work, um, and he's like, "I'm just going to move it up and do it this year." Mm-hmm. So I find all this out uh, when I you know shot his tiny boat session just before everything shuts down, and he calls me up, uh, and he's like, "Hey, I need some. I need a. I need a hand sailing the boat back from Hawaii," and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I'm not going to say no to that. So I yeah. in quarantine in Hawaii. And at this point, like I, I'd, I'd got a harmonica and I taught myself some songs. And I mean, I'm just terrible, but it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I filmed myself playing some harmonica, then filmed Eric playing music as he's sailing across the Pacific. And these images were just absolutely gorgeous. And I came back and I, cause I'd been thinking to myself, like this tiny boat session thing was a lot of work Yeah, uh, and it's, it's silly and it's, it's a bit whimsical but again, I just saw these images, uh, and I just got inspired. So I came back, and I was like, oh, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a season three of Tiny Boat session." Uh, and my first collect, like, like when we came back, we sailed into the smoke in September oh, right. of last yeah. year. Like just fires, in- yeah, sailed into a wall of smoke in the Puget Sound. Uh, case numbers were rising, and we'd had this beautiful <laughs> 24 days sailing across. Uh, The Pacific, just thinking about sailing across the Pacific and nothing else that was happening in the rest of the world uh, because all your focus really needs to be on the boat. Um, So we sail in and there's this wall of smoke, case numbers are rising, and it's just like, it's just a real bummer, (laughs) but I was like, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna collect some more tiny boat sessions. And when I did, it was a rainy day, I got three songs. I was like, maybe maybe this needs to just sit for a little while. And so I didn't know if I would go out and do it again. Um, I ended up going to go visit my driving down and quarantining and visiting, moving in with my parents for two months. And they live right next to the Rio Grande in Albuquerque. And there's a beautiful forest down there. And, you know, in the the winter, the water rises up. So there's enough to float. And I kept going down to the river every day, walking the dog, walking by all this water. And I thought to myself, if I had a boat, (laughs) I like could tiny boat session down here. So I called up my, <laughs> brother. <laughs> so I called up my brother's old scoutmaster and I got this, uh, he had this broken red canoe and one of my uh, COVID hobbies had been uh, wood carving. So I was able to carve a new piece for it and put that in there. And uh, then I went out to, I just kind of put it out there to, to Albuquerque. Um, Artists
0: was, come and sing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I had another, uh, I got another 40 songs. From another, um, I think eleven or twelve artists, and it was like there was country, there was flamenco, there was jazz, uh, and it was it was just beautiful. And this woman was uh, uh, Stella. She was like, you know, I love this idea. I know a bunch of people in Humboldt where I used to live. Like, are you gonna tiny boat session there? You should tiny boat session there. And I was like, yeah, I should tiny boat session.
0: How can I, I find a boat, boat there? Let's do it. yeah.
1: Like, I'm just gonna find boats all the way back and if I can find a boat, then I can find musicians to sing in a tiny boat. <laughs> and, that was, <laughs> and that was when, uh, when Greg uh, connected me with you um, and yeah. And you found Well, you tack- were in
0: Santa Barbara and then you were making your way up the coast. Yeah, yeah. And I love how, again, it takes a life of its own. Like you don't know where it's going. You just trust in the process. You started with something you like, right. It was passionate. You, you really liked the, that guy singing and you say, I'm going to just take this and put it out there. And then another and another and another it's, I really love the fact that you don't ever think it. <laughs> it's true. I mean, just I'm the same. Like two months ago, I, I had a great conversation with a friend and it was like, this should be able to be shared. How do you create a podcast? I want this. Like I I'm really interested in how other people do with the things they do and why they do it and how they do it, how they make it happen. And, a lot of people ask me that, like, how do you do it? Okay, let's put it on tape. Let's create a podcast. I don't know where it's going. I'm loving it. Maybe 10 years from now, I'll still do it or maybe not. Who cares, right? It's, we just have to, to, those creative moments, we have to do it.
1: Yeah, and that's the way that like this one's felt very um very organic and and again not very planned. Uh but you know now now it's become a, uh, added a little bit more structure because I built a website tinyboatsession.com um and I and and it has that kind of structure. Uh and I'm you know now I'm feeding out a song every other day um and I and like I have enough songs like I'll be doing it every other day until March of, <laughs> of 2022. 2022. um but then this is uh it's interesting because there's a juxtaposition of me uh doing this writing and you know I'm trying to write some uh historical fiction and they're these like these big epic books and like this is taking so much planning and so there's this combination of you know knowing what it takes in terms of planning wise to get a really large thing done and then just kind of I think there's the, there's the passion part that gets things going and kind of riding that wave. But then at a certain point, you know, either that passion, um, I don't want to say fizzles out, but like, but has to, mm. you have to, at some point you have to harness it.
0: To what end, to, right?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, 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 exactly. Like to, to, to what end? And like, cause it's going to start to take like following um, some kind of, of passion is, is good for its own sake. But yes. at the same time, if it's going to if it's going to go past an an obsession, uh, then it needs to figure out like to what end. Yes, and it doesn't have to be a great philosophical thing, and it, you don't have to be coming up with a new to what end. If it is just purely for you know enjoyment, like that's that is good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, and 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 you can anybody can you can use another person's uh like if another person has come up with the same reason for their particular what uh to what end like that's fine i mean we're humans we're all really not that different we're motivated by a lot of the of similar things but it's coming to that conclusion yourself um, with with your actions and you know where are you doing something because it's an obsession or a compulsion uh versus like what is the what Mm -hmm. is the point that i'm doing this and, um, and, and am I happy with that? And, uh, yeah. and do it? And do I want that to change? Or do I want that to, you know, am I spending my energy in, in the right ways? And I mean, I yes, certainly ask time. myself that yeah. question a lot.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I trust the process in general that if it has to stop, it has to stop. And um, like, of course, it's like, for example, a podcast, it takes an hour, an hour and a half to re- record and maybe two or three hours to edit and put online. And it's, it's okay now because I'm not that busy. But the moment I get a full-time job, yeah, it's, maybe it's just going to be too much of a burden, but I trust the fact that I'm going to learn something that I don't know, that I, I don't know where it's going to take me, but maybe after a hundred episodes, somebody's going to say, hey, we like the way you interview people. Can you do this? So I don't even envision where it's going to take me. But it could take me somewhere, like even you tiny boat sessions. Maybe someone who says, "I want to do this in France. Can I use your platform to do this?" And sure, let's do it. And then it it could take international. You know, who knows? And I love this tiny boat session for the people. (laughs) Petite session dans le bateau. We do the French one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because I think you're giving a voice to all these artists, right there. They're playing for themselves to try to get, uh, you know, and, and just to be heard is what, what's the feedback that you get from those artists and you when know, they I thank you.
1: Yeah. I think that it's uh, the, it's, it's such a weird thing. Uh, although it also, it, it's, it's a different thing, but it's also very natural. I mean, there's something about when I look at, and when I, and I, what I perceive, what other people think as well as they look at someone, you know, sitting in the back of a cute little boat and it just kind of, it, it, it's almost a, you know, maybe not a not a primal image, but a very um almost like a classic image of I'm just yes. a musician playing in a boat. That just seems like a really wonderful thing. And uh, you know, I I got the boat, I know how to make people comfortable in the boat and you know hold that space for them. So it becomes there's there's I get the gift of them, you know, playing this song and like I get to be like right there in the boat while they're playing it and so there's something that they're getting something from the experience i'm getting something from the experience and then we've together we've captured that and then it's and then and and if if one if if i can transfer you know even one tenth or even one percent of the feeling i have when i'm filming these people play in the boat uh if some of that can come across in in Wherever someone finds it on the internet, whether it's a web- website or any of the social media that it's on, um, then then that seems like a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think
1: that there's uh, throughout life, I uh, I think one of the things that I that I ponder and I, I think of is is uh, searching for an unequivocal good, and I don't think that exists because I think there's a part of me that's a very cynical person. Uh, and if I think about something too much, then I can tear it apart. Mm -hmm. And there's really, and I haven't come across anything that if I don't really think about it too much that I can't see some kind of, you know, hypocrisy or some kind of, you know, uh, misunderstanding or like, uh, kind of a a privilege that might make you blind, uh, that's, you know, that somehow makes something that. At first you know seems like an unequivocal good something that is you know actually highlights something that is maybe not so good yeah and um so i don't think that is unequivocal good exists but people playing songs in the back of a tiny boat seems pretty darn close
0: yeah <laughs> well it's it's putting the good out there and whatever it does again there's this un, uncontrolled um, a domino effect like somebody's going to listen to it, you don't know who you're going to inspire, but maybe that was' one song that they needed to hear that day i I really like to watch them because you feel like it, it, it's like a somebody who plays next to a bonfire it's very intimate, and mm-hmm. then you, you could create on that platform something very intimate that you wouldn't see uh, like a- a- available to anyone so please continue doing this, like for the <laughs> I, next 10 years.
1: <laughs> I will, yeah. Like,
0: I'm definitely gonna, like, I'm I'm gonna feed like
1: my, again, as a part of like the to, to what end is, as, uh, as Tiny Boat Session uh, develops, like each, so there's like, there's been three seasons and the first one was just like, grabbed whatever I could and figured it out. And then the second one was kind of rolling with that momentum. And then the third one was thinking through things a little bit more and creating a website. So the next level of this needs to be, you know, figure out what does what's a higher production value to be able to, you know, make a higher sound quality, and um, and 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 just be able to keep that intimacy, but make it a make it a a, figure out how to make it a little bit more accessible, or just a little bit more um, polished, Uh, still keeping that, uh, still keeping the rawness and that intimacy, uh, but just do that a little bit better to be able to, to share these really wonderful little moments. I mean, as I was traveling back, uh, I was, uh, like again, kind of going with, you know, things that it, it kind of made me feel a little bit like an obsession, but I was just like, what a, it just felt like such a magical journey that mm-hmm. I was on. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm so blessed that I've had, uh, blessed, lucky, privileged, whatever you want to call it. had a lot of these moments like when we when we rolled in the Falmouth um you know we uh you know we didn't have any food we'd ran we'd ran out of all of our food uh and between the four of us we lost 150 pounds um but all of that and 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 our family had been waiting for us and like my dad was gonna have to leave like the the and when my brother and my uh girlfriend at the time the, the very next day but the way this timing ended up working out and we rode into falmouth when uh on this on august 20th of 2006 with this perfect lighting um and all of these this family that we could see on shore and then these hundreds of other people who we had no idea that were welcoming welcoming us into falmouth and these experiences of of rowing past this big ship that was getting painted and the captain just laid on the horn and it yeah. was so loud, it was right next to us that we we felt the the oars vibrate in our hands. Mm-hmm. And then this old man in this beautiful wooden dory, like he just he he came up and he was he was puttering in like a little two-stroke engine and he was just putting away. Uh he turns it off, it gets silent, and he grabs the oars and he just starts rowing next to us and just doesn't say a word. <laughs> <laughs> like we get close to shore mm-hmm. and people thinking like. Michael row the boat ashore. Uh, We get a little bit closer and there's this moment of of us just um, uh, like this this all the singing like it gets silent for a second and everybody just they're looking at us and we're looking at them and we're uh, getting just a little bit closer and a little bit closer. Uh, Brad throws this rope to my brother. He catches it and he pulls us in and then I I step out like into the arms of uh, like from a boat named after my biological father into a boat, into into the, the arms of my of my of my second dad, yeah. uh, and I mean it was it was a perfect moment. Like I wouldn't like yeah. the fact that I get to call that story my own, and that was one thing that was very profound that my dad said to me, uh, like on the dock. He was like, "You have something that nobody can take away from you," and yeah. you know, I guess that story is one of those things that, um, you know, that we have that is you know one of the last things that we can be is stripped of us. And even then, uh, when we can't remember it, it's, you know, it can live on in other places. And that's the powerful thing about a story is that it can, it Mm -hmm. can transcend time. Um, And yeah, we're creatures that tell stories.
0: I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back to the tiny boat, I think it has to go international. (laughs) Because here's here's a reason why. Uh, When I was 25, I did a trip around the world for one year with very little money. But everywhere you go, well, obviously, there are different languages. And I think one of the the universal language is music. And I just wished I had a harmonica or a guitar. I wish I could have played the guitar. Because you go in this little plaza in Bolivia, in Togo, in Kenya, in Turkey, it doesn't matter if you speak to anybody. You just go to the plaza, play the guitar, play a record. People are gonna come and dance. People are gonna. It's like the best communication. Now you do that on a tiny boat. You go, I don't know, a little harbor in Turkey or whatever, and you go to a little harbor in Croatia, and you start playing. My friend, it's gonna be nice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, uh, I know. It's funny because oh. like I've, I've never really thought of myself uh, like I, I I wouldn't even say like now I'm a musical person. I can like I can last august i could play uh five minutes of harmonica terribly (laughs) and that's that's the extent of my musical talent but uh just the it is it's interesting being in the in this position of kind of you know creating the space for people to to do that and uh like the stage itself it just like the the colors of these where these people are playing um you know because they're they're playing, and I'm really focused on keeping the frame, uh, making sure everything's well framed around them. And up until this point, I've just been doing the the audio on my iPhone, which has been, for most of them, remarkably mm-hmm. good. And I like the the ambient noise in the background. And I've noticed that the boat itself uh, seems to echo up into the phone, and I think that's part of the reason why it's uh, it's been, you know, why that the sound quality has been good. Uh, but so i'm really focused on this this image and then i'll watch it later and i'll be like i can't believe i was the one that that was there shooting it yeah and seeing all of these wonderful colors and and shapes while this person is uh playing the song that's in their heart and that's that and that's been the prompt like the in terms of the music that i want from someone it's like do you have a song in your heart that you want to play on a tiny boat (laughs)
0: Mm. i love it you know kudos for you to actually in the first place see the beauty of the surrounding see the beauty of the moment and the artist and beauty of the, the human connection and sharing it. That's, that's, that's really fantastic. So thank you for doing that. Okay. So if you had one advice to give uh, one takeaway to somebody who w- really wants to do something, no matter what it is, uh, what, what advice would you give them?
1: Well, I think that, uh, you know, over the years I've had people, um, you know, come to me and ask me about, you know, ocean row stuff. Cause you know, that's, that's what I did. Uh, and one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of people like the idea of something hmm. versus the actual thing. And so I think that when you're thinking about a project that you want to do, um, there is, like being critical like self-critical i think is is an important part of that and i think it's an important part of doing especially big projects you know uh, efficiently and safely is mm-hmm. is, is building in uh, a, a lot of self-criticism and i think and but that and i and i don't mean that in a negative way i just mean that as like you know like again to what end um and examining do you like the idea of this or do you really like the thing and sometimes like if it's, it's a pretty new thing, like that's hard to, um, that's mm-hmm. hard to, 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 suss out initially. Uh, but, um, you know, getting into it, you know, if it's, if it's something that you don't really enjoy, that's a like, purely ego driven, um, like you have to like, like the thing. And you, yeah. if you're going to, and if you're going to do something big, um, do it cause you also like it yeah. like that you're passionate about the thing and not, um, the idea of, the, of accomplishing it because yeah. like, I love rowing. That's why I'm still doing it. It's why like, it's, I feel so lucky that I'm able to take people out on these rowing tours and share this thing that I don't know why, like I like rowing, I, I like rowing and I like rowing a lot of weight around. And um, <laughs> that's just who I am. I dig it. I think it's yeah. cool. Um, I just think that like rowboats are are neat little human objects. <laughs> everything about them is, is interesting to me. Um, And I liked being out at sea because of in in that particular platform, because of all the things that I felt I saw.
0: Hmm. Awesome. So basically the, the issue would be if you think you want to do something, but it's not really ingrained in, in, it's more the idea of doing it rather than the pleasure, Mm -hmm. then you would probably quit or something, or it's not adequated properly. And the, what would be the problem?
1: Yeah, well, because I, I think like it's it's part of it is like uh, you know you gotta you gotta enjoy the process, and so if you're not really enjoying the process, then examining if that's really what you want to spend with your time, because like mm-hmm. you know if, if if you're if you want to do something big, uh, I like you gotta be okay with failing, yeah. because I mean you can't do something big and and really give a damn about it um, and failure not be a risk, yeah, and so if you're going to invest that time into it. Then you sure as hell better enjoy the process. Because if not, like we, even if you live 100 years, that's a short time to be on the earth. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people are not going to be that lucky. So to spend time doing something that you, uh, you know, that you don't really enjoy the process, um, I mean, that's a, that seems pretty rough. I agree. I love it.
0: Two more questions. The last, uh, the, the one before last is the reveal of the song. Um, have you had time? I, I really like to ask people to listen to a song before we, t- we talk so that it, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about this when we planned it, uh, like two, three
1: days ago. And you know, it's funny is, like I have been doing these, these tiny boat sessions. Um, and when it comes to like music that I listen to on a consistent basis, it's like a lot of it's classical, like, Cause I find words, if I'm trying to, to focus on something, I find words really distracting. Yeah. Um, but what I was thinking, I was like, yeah, what's, what's something that I kind of go back to every once in a while. And I really like Aaron Copeland. Yeah. Uh, so like, uh, you know, you might, do you remember that commercial beef? It's what's for dinner? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was a, they took an Aaron Copeland song and they added it over uh, this, you know, uh, but it's a really like, if you heard his stuff, you would absolutely recognize it. But it's very, he, um, he was this composer uh, that was writing in the 1930s and 40s uh, about kind of a mythical West. Yeah. So um, it's all, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's symphony, but it's very. Um,
0: well, yeah. you will, you will not believe it, but I did another podcast with the one just before. So it's going to be a episode just before you. He gave me also Aaron Copland. Really? Yes, John died So now you need to to meet John. <laughs> yeah, which
1: what, uh, what, what, what song in, in so particular?
0: I'm trying to to put it on my phone right now uh, because he sent me the link. It's called Fanfar for, for the Common Man. man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know it? Yeah, that's what, <laughs> I was listening, that's what I was listening to earlier.
1: I mean, it's like, you know, I think some people might think it's a little bit cheesy and maybe it is, but, um, you know, I'm,
0: I think I'm a little bit cheesy. <laughs> well no it's not a bit cheesy it, it, yeah that's what you want to listen to I love it yeah. but now I think you need to talk to John yeah. <laughs> he's a big paddler and I think you have the common love for the water so <laughs> yeah, that's funny I love it where uh, people can follow you uh,
1: uh, so um, Instagram uh, is Jordan Hansen um, and that's Hansen with two S's H-A-N-S-S-E-N uh, Tiny Boat Session on Instagram and Facebook uh, and then Jordanhanson.com. I got a book, Rowing into the Sun. Uh, the late, great uh, uh, writer, Clive Cussler, uh, liked it. <laughs> he, did oh, the he did the blurb for my book. So uh, if you reach out to me on um, uh, on my website, uh, I'll send you a signed copy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just uh, that's where you can read some of my other writing that I, some content marketing that I've done for, for Filson, which is some history stuff uh and, and they can row
0: with you up north yeah in, uh, Tacoma. yeah you put, are uh, you Tacoma?
1: yeah i uh, know i'm in seattle but you seattle. can come um you can find uh if you go to rowing urban waterways on uh airbnb experiences but you can find all this on my website uh jordanhanson.com um or just reach out to me on instagram fantastic
0: handsome Hanson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'll take it <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time and and your wise words. Uh, We'll keep following you because you give good, good, amazing energies to the world and we need people like you. So,
1: Likewise. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you, Jordan. And thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I'm your host, Cyril. And remember, life is an adventure. Live it. (laughs) Indeed. Right, my brother thank you yeah. so much
1: thank you so much Take I hope care. to see Bye. you soon all right see
0: ya. hasta luego Bye. Bye.